My name is uh, Caleb Brazier, and I am uh, one of the pastors here. Um, and so glad you guys are here with us this morning. So this is my first time uh, back here preaching in a number of weeks. So I've been gone the last uh, few weeks between um, some trips we had. Uh, one in particular, we're gone in Israel for two weeks. And it is, man, I have been chomping at the bit to get back up here. We just finished walking a year and a half through First and Second Samuel. And after being in Israel for 10 days, I say we just run it back and just go through First and Second Samuel again. Why not? It's a, a whole new perspective. I'm kidding. We won't do that. We'll We'll go, we're heading now to a new chapter actually um, into the New Testament and beginning a new series through 2 Corinthians. So one of the things that marks us here at the church is we're expository preachers. So what that means is that the majority of time we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we just finished a year and a half through second, First and Second Samuel and we're now about to jump into 2 Corinthians and walk through it um, up until next May. We'll take four weeks in December uh, for Christmas, for Advent, uh, but we'll be tracking through 2 Corinthians up until then. Uh, so just by a quick way of introduction uh, to introduce you to 2 Corinthians, so we just jump right in, so we don't just jump right into it. A couple things you need to know and realize. What is 2 Corinthians? Well, uh, 2 Corinthians was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. It was a church in Corinth. So a lot of the New Testament is just that. It's churches, uh, uh, letters that were written to churches. So it's 2 Corinthians because this is the second letter that we have from Paul written to the church. Now there was another letter and uh, visits that Paul would make to the church in Corinth. We'll see that as we walk through it. But these were the two that God chose in his um, uh, divine inspiration to place within the scriptures, within the Bible for us to see. So this is the second letter that we have. And there's uh, something that we need to know about Paul. If you're unfamiliar with Paul, Paul is one of the apostles. He wrote a number of the books of the Bible. So Paul, though, before he was a Christian, was a Jewish zealot. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was uh, uh, Israelite of Israelites. He was actually one of the first persecutors of the church. So Paul, being Jewish and being a Jewish leader, saw this new movement that was rising called Christianity and was threatening kind of the power structures there in the Middle East, in Israel. So Paul was leading the charge to begin to take out and kill some of these Christian leaders. The very first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen, um, and Paul was actually there uh, leading up that stoning and that uh, murder of Stephen. So Paul, at the very beginning, was actually a Middle Eastern terrorist who was trying to stamp out this movement of people who were following Jesus. But then on this road to Damascus, he's uh, riding one day, and Jesus meets him and knocks him off his donkey and says, Paul, man, who are you? Why are you persecuting me? And I love, this doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, I just love that Jesus asked that question. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now remember who Paul was persecuting. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus already died, buried, resurrected, and ascended. Paul was persecuting the church, the people who were following Jesus. But Jesus has such a close connection and communion with those who follow him with his church, what the Bible calls his bride, that whenever people persecuted the church, they were persecuting him. And so Jesus then opens Paul's eyes, calls him to himself, and then sends him out to be a missionary to the Gentiles, to all those outside of Israel, to take this gospel of Jesus Christ from J Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And Paul was going to be the main missionary to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. And so Paul then begins to go. He has missionary journeys, stopping from city to city. And what Paul would do is he would preach the gospel, People would then come to believe in this Jesus. He would gather them together, raise up pastors or elders, place them there in that town, and then go to the next city. 
and do the same thing. So Paul, at the very beginning of this Christian movement, is all about seeing people converted and gathering together churches, placing in elders and deacons, and then moving on. He was planting churches here at the very beginning. That was the story of Acts. Then, after these churches had been established, Paul continues to go back and visit them, but he's also writing letters to them, encouraging them, helping them understand, hey, this is false teaching. You need to make sure to remember what is true. Remember of first importance what I told you, namely the gospel. So Paul's writing these letters back to these churches that he helped start. And that's, in essence, what we see here in 2 Corinthians, as Paul has now got this relationship with his church in Corinth, and he's writing again a letter to them to remind them of what is true. So that's who Paul is. But then who is Corinth? Right? Is Corinth like the uh, cool, laid-back town of Groveland that just, you know, takes it as it comes and goes and eats game and wilderness and goes mudding around? Is it, is it laid-back and kind of a little bit country like Groveland? Is it more metropolitan like Winter Garden with their brick-paved downtowns and their nice, fancy coffee shops? And what, what was Corinth like? Well, Corinth in the first century was actually one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. Corinth was located uh, on an isthmus, uh, which had water on both sides. It was actually a port city on both sides of the city and became very influential and very strategic in the Roman Empire. And so really quickly in Paul's time, it was a new city that was being rebuilt and wealth was flooding into it. And it became one of the most influential cities in the entire Roman Empire. And so there was this uh, new uh, wealth that was there. There were sailors that were constantly passing through. And so it became a place that kind of modern day, the closest comparison we would have would be a place like Las Vegas. New money, wealth, but then with that also brought a lot of sin, a lot of debauchery. And that is, in essence, what we see in Corinth. And so Paul goes and plants a church here, but this church had all sorts of issues. We saw that. If you ever read 1 Corinthians, they were dealing with a lot of stuff. And Paul's like, hey, stop being dumb. This is really dumb. Even people that aren't Christians aren't doing the things that you're doing. So just stop it. And then he is more encouraged in 2 Corinthians, but he continues to, rem to remind them what the, gospel of the, what the kingdom of the gospel is like. Because again, being in Corinth, they saw all these new buildings that were coming up. All these people that were popular, these orators and these speakers that would go and, and astound people with how gifted they were at communicating. And it was all about who could have the most strength. Who could be the most impressive? Because here's this new city that's vying for importance in this empire. And what was treasured in the city of Corinth was strength, power, and influence. And that began to creep into the church in Corinth. And Paul writes this letter to them. And the overarching theme of this letter is Paul's wanting to remind them, no, the gospel is different than that. The gospel is actually the exact opposite of that. The gospel is that God is actually shown to be great when we are at our weakest. And we as Christians are most powerful when we are our weakest. And the whole message of 2 Corinthians is summed up in that phrase, that we find God's power in our weakness. And hence the name of the sermon series we walk through, Power in Weakness. And so I can't help but see the parallels between the church in Corinth and the church in America today. And so one of the reasons why we're walking through it is because there's so much applicable to us. And I think there's so much danger and temptation for us as well today to have this kind of American ethos begin to seep into our church. 
How large can our churches be? How impressive can our churches be? How much power and influence can we strive and gather together? It is the the people that God uses are the most important and the most influential people. So we need more and more of them on our team. You know who God needs? God needs Kanye West on his team. That's who he needs. And now that he's got Kanye, then maybe now God can do some things. And friends, if Paul was here today, he would write a church to America going, listen, it is not about who's the most powerful. It's about who's the weakest. And it's we find God's power and his grace being sufficient than in our weakness. So that kind of frames for us who Corinth is, who Paul is, and why he's writing this letter. Because they were a little bit unsure about Paul. Because Paul wasn't impressive. He wasn't a good speaker. He didn't look very good. He'd been in prison like a million times. He'd, gotten, he'd received suffering and pain. And here come all these other guys that are strolling through Corinth preaching this gospel, and they're impressive. People could listen to them for hours. They were being paid for what they were preaching. And here were these people that were doing what seemed to be lining up with the culture, and Paul seemed to kind of be an outlier. And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth to remind them what the kingdom really looks like and what it truly means to live a life based in the gospel. And so that gets us now to the very beginning of this letter in 2 Corinthians. Paul is defending his ministry and reminding the church of what is important. So we'll be in verses 1 through 7 this morning in chapter 1. If you grab one of the Bibles uh, next to you, it's on page 1023. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. So we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 here this morning. So we'll read through it, those seven verses, quickly and then jump in. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which then produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. So Paul begins here this letter reminding them, hey, I've gone through some stuff. I've gone through pain, I've gone through affliction, I've gone through sorrow. And for the church in Corinth, that was a negative That kind of difficulty was a negative. God's preachers surely are living that blessed life. They're living hashtag blessed, and all things are working for them in their favor, in their good. They've got lots of money. They've got big planes. And here comes Paul, who just got out of prison. There's no way that this guy has the true gospel. And Paul's reminding them at the very beginning, saying, hey, the the pain that I've gone through, the affliction that I've experienced, it's actually for your benefit. And he's authenticating his ministry here at the very beginning as he writes this letter and greets them and says, hey, just remember, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've been sent by Christ Jesus with his message. And I'm writing this to you, the church of God at Corinth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with this standard greeting, but he reminds them of who he is, that he is an apostle. 
And we'll spend the majority of our time this morning in verses 3 through 7. There's three things that I want us to look at in particular. I want us to see this morning in this text, we want to see who God is, want to see what God does, and then finally want to see why God does it. Who God is, what God does, and finally, why God does it. So first, we'll see who God is in verse 3. We see Paul begins with this kind of benediction saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So I love Paul as he begins here and he gives these names for who God is. Because for a lot of us, I think when we try to image and have this picture of who God is, there's so much that shapes our view of God in what we experience in this life. So when I were to ask you who God is like or what God is like, what begins to pop into your head? Being to think through maybe difficult times in our life, struggles in our life, or maybe a yearning that we've had. God, we just want to be close to you. We want to feel close to you. We want to be intimate with you. We want to know you and be known by you. But it just feels dry. It feels distant. God, at times, doesn't feel like you're a God who loves me. It feels more like you're up in the, a, a, a kid with a magnifying glass, and we're in an anthill, and you're just trying to kind of burn us and have fun with us and just mess around. God, that's what it feels like you are. And so it's important for us to not speak to ourselves, to listen to ourselves, but to see who God has said he is himself within Scripture. What are the names that God gives himself? And what we see here in verse 3 is God says that, uh, that he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I just want to just pause on those two names to not just gloss over them, to see them as kind of like these formal names, but to realize what it is they're saying. That God is the Father of mercies. That he's the God of all comfort. That every mercy, every comfort that we experience begins with him. He is the origin and the source of it all. Right, when we were over in Israel, listen, for, for years you got Avengers illustrations, now you're about to get a lot of Israel illustrations, so I'm sorry, but just deal with it. While we were over there, we got to go to North Israel to this place called Tel Dan, and there was this mountain, the largest mountain there in Israel, Mount Hermon, and as it flowed down, there was this spring that formed. It would form from the snow that melted and would flow down, but also dew that would then come down. It formed this humongous spring that then flowed. It's got a national park around it now. We got to walk through it, and it was just, uh, at times, it looked like it had rapids flowing through it. It was not just a little trickling spring. It was this huge spring that was flowing down from this mountain. And then as it continued to flow down this mountain and then further down into the valleys of Israel, there'd be other things that would feed into it, two other springs in particular. And then soon it would form into the Jordan River. The Jordan River would then flow into the Sea of Galilee and then again flow down the Jordan River again, then all the way down to the Dead Sea. But it all began in this spring up in Tel Dan. That this humongous river with so much significance throughout the world, it began with a small little fount that would then flow into a stream, flow into then this uh, source of this river. It all began there. And friends, whenever we see God, we don't see a God who is detached and removed from our lives, but a God who is the very source, the origin of every mercy and comfort and blessing that we experience in our life. 
So when we sing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, what we're singing and praying there and acknowledging who God is, is we're saying, God, every blessing that we experience, you are the fount of that blessing. God, you are the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercy. Every mercy, comfort, and blessing we experience, it begins with you. We have no goodness in our life apart from you. You are the source of all of it. You're the beginning of all of it. And as it flows down, other things flow into it until we receive it. And it begins and starts with you. You're the source of it all. And so it's interesting then if we remember who's saying this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is the one here saying, God, you are the God of all comforts and the Father of mercies. Why is that significant? Because remember Paul's life and what Paul went through. We mentioned some of it, but the life that Paul lived was anything but a charmed life. He didn't have no pixie dust on his life. Paul went through coldness, nakedness, imprisonment, time and time and time again, shipwrecks, time and time and time again, betrayal, criminal assault, abandonment, desolation, desertion, and more. He was stoned multiple times to the point of death. They would bring him out and drop rocks on him until finally it seemed like he couldn't breathe anymore, drug him outside the city because they thought he was dead. Paul then recovers, gets back up, walks back into the city to keep preaching the gospel. He would receive 40 lashes plus uh, the ones that would seem like it would get him right to the edge of his life. Paul experienced tremendous pain and tremendous suffering and tremendous affliction in his life over and over and over again. It says later in chapter 4 that he carries around with him the body of death. That's his life. Anything but a a nice, comfortable, middle-class life, Paul's the exact opposite of it. His life seemed incredibly difficult, and yet, Paul, in the midst of those circumstances, looks up to God and said, God, you know who you are? You are the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort, and the Father of mercies. How can Paul experience that kind of pain, that kind of hurt, that kind of affliction, and still see God that way? How could he see God as the God of all comforts when he had only experienced so much pain? Friends, what Paul lays out for us after this is the the only way that he actually knew God to be a God of comfort was precisely because he experienced so much pain. And it was there walking through that suffering that taught him what God's comfort truly was. So that brings us then to our second point, then what God does. Who God is, he is the God of all comfort. Well, what then does God do? What God does. Look at the first half of verse 4. That God comforts us in all our affliction. God comforts us in all of our affliction. So God is the God of all comforts. What does he do? He comforts us in every single one of our affliction and all of our pain. God comes and he meets us. He wraps his arms around us, and he brings comfort that no one else does. The Holy Spirit, that's actually one of his names, is the comforter, the paraclete, the one who comes to help, the the comforter. And so that sounds good, but my, my question, at least when I hear that, is I go, God, that's incredibly encouraging to hear, but what does that mean, right? What does that look like? What's it actually look like in my life for God to comfort me. In your life, what's it look like for God to comfort you? Is it just this idea, or how do we put legs on it? How do we put flesh on it? 
Listen, we're trying to put flesh on who God is. We have no further to look than Jesus Christ. That's exactly who Christ was. He was the image of God. He was the true revelation of God. So if you ever want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God does, look to Jesus. So as we want to see how God comforts us, we need to look no further than Jesus. So what I want want us to do is kind of pause here in 2 Corinthians and look at a case study of comfort. I want us to look at a situation where Jesus came and brought comfort to those who were in affliction. So then we then can see how God comforts us today. And it's back in John chapter 11. You can flip there if you'd like. You don't have to. Uh, John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus, who's a friend of Jesus. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were also very, very close to Jesus in his ministry. And here's this story in which Lazarus becomes sick. And Lazarus becomes sick. Word gets back to Jesus And what does Jesus do? He's away from Lazarus. Now, remember, Jesus is doing all sorts of miracles at this point. He's blind people can now see, lame people can walk, uh, dead people are alive, sick people aren't sick anymore. And so here now is a good friend of his who's fallen sick and, and pretty seriously sick. And when Jesus hears of it, what does it say that he does? He gets his disciples together and run to Bethany real quick to be able to heal Lazarus. Now, Jesus hears and he goes, hey, we've got to wait a little while. We've got to wait a few days. And as he waits, Lazarus actually dies. Good friend of Jesus, someone that Jesus could have healed. He could have even healed with a thought. Jesus didn't even have to be there. But yet Jesus waits, lets Lazarus die, and then his sisters, Mary and Martha, go through tremendous pain. Just imagine being Mary or Martha in that time. You're now dealing not only with the loss of your brother that you love, but also having to try to wrestle with this fact that this teacher, this rabbi, this Messiah, who could have healed him, didn't. Where was Jesus in that moment? Jesus, where were you whenever my brother was sick and has now died? And so Jesus, with his disciples, when he hears that Lazarus has died, then he goes, all right, now it's time to go. He gets up and he walks into Bethany. And what I want us to see, in particular for us this morning, look at the way that Jesus interacts with Mary and with Martha. As he comes and he brings comfort to them. Because one of the things that we'll see is that he comforts them in different ways. There is no cookie-cutter comfort. It all depends both on who we are, who the person is, and what they need within that very moment. So what we see first is Jesus comes, he experiences Martha, and he comforts with hope. He comforts her with hope, and he comforts us with hope. Notice Martha, when she sees him, runs out to meet him. Mary stays back in the house. She's like, listen, I can't even deal right now. Martha, though, runs to meet him. And his very first words to her, he looks at her. She runs forward, and he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. The very first thing that he gives her is hope. He gives her theology. He gives her doctrine. Martha, I want you to know there's coming a day when your brother will rise again. Now, he meant it both literally because Jesus knew he was about to walk over to the tomb, say, Lazarus, get out, and Lazarus was going to come wobbling out, and they'd have to come and take the grave clothes, not the grave clothes, the grave clothes off of him. And don't dress like Lazarus at the church next week. He knew that that was coming, so he was meaning both literally. Your brother will rise again because, Martha, I'm about to go raise him again. But he also meant something more than that. 
And I say that because he then widens it from Lazarus to then every person who trusts and follow him. Look down at verse 25 and 26. He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Jesus is now no longer talking about Lazarus, and he's also not talking about the resurrection that's about to happen. Because yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but spoiler alert, Lazarus died again. He's not still here. So Jesus here isn't talking about the resurrection that's about to happen. He's talking about the resurrection that is still to come. That when Jesus returns, he will then raise all those who are in him back to life to live for eternity with him in this new Jerusalem, in this new kingdom, in this new heaven and new earth. And so Jesus, in the midst of Martha's pain, in the midst of Martha's suffering, he meets her and comforts her with hope. Martha, there is a better day coming. There is a day where this enemy will be completely stamped out. And there is coming a day when there will be no more death and no more grave clothes, or who knows, maybe not even no more grove clothes. And it will only be life for all those who believe in me. That's coming. And friends, it's the same with us at times. When we walk through pain and we walk through suffering in this life, there are moments where God bends down and he meets us with hope. And he comforts us with hope. To say, listen, I know the pain that you're walking through right now, but hear me say that this pain will not last forever. Every ounce of pain and suffering in your life has an expiration date on it. It will not last forever. And he comes to meet us there in that moment. This is a true for me. Whenever seven years ago, I got a phone call that my father had passed away, mowing the yard one day. It was unexpected. On my way, flight back home from North Carolina back to Louisiana, I just kept reading Romans 8 over and over and over again. And in it, there's this one verse that just popped out to me as Paul says that I don't consider the sufferings of this world to pale in comparison to the glory that's to be revealed to us. And I just couldn't move past that because I was for the first time in my life experiencing suffering unlike what I'd experienced before. I was experiencing affliction. I was experiencing the pain and brokenness of this world. And what God offered me in that moment was to say, Caleb, yes, there is pain here, but it doesn't compare to the glory that's to be revealed. And for the very first time, I had handles on just how incredible heaven was going to be. Because I understood this great level of pain in this life, and I knew that it didn't compare to what was to come. And Jesus comes and he offers hope at times to us and comforts us with hope. That those who have walked through the greatest suffering in this life have the greatest picture of just how incredible heaven's going to be. It doesn't compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so that's what Jesus comes and he offers hope. He offers theology, he offers doctrine, he offers this hope of the resurrection and the life. But then, Jesus goes and meets Mary. And as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear the anger in her heart. You can hear the confusion and it's totally understandable of looking at Jesus and going, you could have stopped this. And she was weeping. There were those around her that were also with her crying. In fact, when she left, they thought that she was going to the tomb to cry there. 
because she just constantly was in this state of sorrow and suffering and pain. And when she saw Jesus, she then experienced anger. Lord, where were you? And how does Jesus respond? Does he tell her, Martha, or Mary, your brother will rise again? Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. No, he doesn't meet her there with hope, but he comforts her with sympathy. He comforts her not with theology, but with tears. Right, look at how Jesus responds. He says, Lord, if you had been my brother, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled and asked, where have you put him? And so they told him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, two words. Jesus wept, the English Bible at least. Jesus wept. And there's been a lot of ink spilled as to why Jesus cried. In fact, the people that were there thought he was crying because of how close he was to Lazarus. Oh, look how much he loved him and the pain that he's in. But friends, as we read through and begin to ask questions and think about this passage, it begins to reveal to ourselves that he didn't cry because Lazarus had died. There's no way, right? Think about what had happened just previous. He'd heard Lazarus was sick. So Jesus could have gone, Lazarus is sick. I don't want him to die. Great, let me think a divine thought. There we go. He's not sick anymore. He could have done that. But Jesus knew what was coming for Lazarus, and he said, we have to wait because there's things that I have to do and things that I have to teach that can't be found out any other way. And so he sat, and he waited, and Mary experienced the silence of God and then walked through the pain and suffering of this world. And so when Jesus shows up then, well, when he got there, was he moved because he finally realized, oh, shoot, Lazarus is actually dead. I, I, I kind of thought about this uh, hypothetically, but now it actually happened. I miss him. No, that's not what happened. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen in like 16 steps from now. He's about to walk over that tomb, say three words, Lazarus, get out, and Lazarus is going to come walking out of that grave. He knew that was coming. He didn't cry because he missed Lazarus. Look at what the text says, or listen if you're not there. It says that when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, then he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And so Jesus wept. What moved Jesus to cry? It was seeing those that he loved in pain. Jesus felt what his friends felt. He felt the pain that they were experiencing. He felt the anger and the hatred for sin that was causing this in their life. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled because he saw someone that he loved hurting. And Jesus was moved to tears and sympathy. And so when he came to Mary, the comfort that he brought her was a hug and some tears. And so I don't know if you've ever walked through difficult moments in your life. But for me, when I walked through that a number of years ago, do you know what the most comforting thing was? It wasn't my New Testament professor calling me, laying out a theology of the resurrection. It was in that moment, the day before the funeral, when my friends showed up came and gave me a hug and just cried with me. They didn't say anything. They were just there, and they cried. And I felt that they were taking on for a moment, at least, in that moment, helping me bear that burden. And they weep 
with those who weep. They rejoice with those who rejoice. And this is what the Christian body, the Christian church is called to do, that we feel with one another. And this is exactly what Jesus does for Mary. He comes and he weeps because he saw her broken. And so he comes and comforts Martha through hope, but he comforts Mary through sympathy, that he feels with those who feel. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, I find a deep mine of comfort in this thought that Jesus is both perfect man, no less than perfect God. That he in whom I'm told by scripture to trust is not only a great high priest, but a feeling high priest. He's not only a powerful savior, but a sympathizing savior. He is not only the son of God mighty to save, but he is the son of man able to feel. That we don't have a God who is so removed from us that he, not only can we not possibly understand him, but there's no way for him to understand us. No, God came and he entered into the pain and he experienced it. Both of the brokenness and pain of this world and temptation as well. Yet he was without sin. So Hebrews says that we now have a sympathetic high priest. That the God that we worship sympathizes with us. He knows what that feels like. And when we cry, he cries. Jesus feels with Mary, and Jesus feels with you, precisely because he hurt like you. And so whether you walked in this morning and you're maybe feeling brokenness, a pain, affliction in this life, the comfort I want you to hear, the way in which God comforts you is through Jesus Christ, particularly through sympathy. That If you're here this morning struggling to financially make ends meet, wondering what you're going to do next month, listen, so did Jesus. He was a man that didn't have a place to lay his own head down. He ministered from a borrowed boat, rode in Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus has felt it as well. If you walked in this morning alone, rejected by those that should love you, maybe friends, coworkers, goodness, maybe even some of your own family, and you look around and go, there's no one who can understand the rejection that I felt. Friends, Jesus can understand the rejection that you felt. That he came to his own and his own rejected him. That even those that did receive him, 12 fishermen and tax collectors that came together and followed him for three years in his ministry, the moment when he needed them the most, they fell asleep. And then when he was crucified, they ran away and they abandoned him in his moment of greatest need. Jesus knows what that is like. Have you ever been misunderstood or misrepresented? Feeling like your motives are constantly misunderstood by those around you. Your character is being maligned publicly. Friends, Jesus was there as well. His entire life and ministry was misunderstood, turned upside down. He was called a glutton, a madman, a blasphemer, and a devil as his character was put on display and cut down, even though he was entirely pure. He understands what that is like. Because if you've ever been hurt by the injustice of a corrupt political system and you felt the pain of a political system that's tipped against you, friends, Jesus was there. He was tried, he was tortured, and he was crucified even though he did nothing. He was condemned by a corrupt system and he was left to die on a cross. If you walk in here feeling tempted, 
overwhelmed by what Satan is throwing at you day after day, week after week. Friends, Jesus was there. He was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. So he has sympathy with us. We have a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted as well. He knows what that is like. He does not cast you aside. He knows our weaknesses. Or maybe you walked in here just feeling agony and darkness and depression and just feeling like God is completely removed from your life. Like he's just left you. And you're asking the question, God, where are you? Friends, Jesus was there as well. As he was hanging on that cross and asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I am now alone. Jesus is there and he's felt all of it. And so we now have a savior who feels with us because he's been hurt like us. And so in that moment, if you've ever gone through something that's painful and then later watched someone that you love walk through that same thing, your heart breaks for them. You know what they're walking through. And when you see them, you just want to wrap your arms around them and cry with them. You're deeply affected because of their pain and because of your love for them. And friends, that's exactly what Christ does with us. He's walked through it, and when he sees his children walking through it as well, his heart breaks, and he's moved to tears. And so we know this about Jesus, that when he sees you crying, when he sees you hurting, when he sees you walking through suffering and affliction, he is deeply moved and troubled in his spirit because he feels it too, and he weeps. And there is coming a day, Revelation 21.4 tells us, that there is coming a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and that pain will be no more. It will be his final and greatest act of comfort. And I'm convinced that the final tear that he'll wipe away with will be his own. And so he comforts us with hope and he comforts us with sympathy because he loves us. But finally, we have to ask the question, is there any purpose in it though? And the pain and suffering that we walk through and the comfort that he gives us, and that brings us to our final point, why God does it? Why does he allow us to walk through this affliction and this pain? So he's the God of all comforts. He then comforts us in our affliction. But what then does he do? Why does he do it? And we don't get all the answers, but we see one reason why here in the last half of verse 4 through verse 7. Look at verse 4 again, that he comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we then may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. Paul says, you want to know why you go through pain? You want to know why God is comforting you? One of the reasons is that God is preparing you to be a minister of comfort to those who walk through pain beside you. God is preparing us to be vessels and ministers of that comfort that we've received from him. Verse 5, that just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So there's this image, have you ever seen like champagne glasses that are stacked up like a pyramid and someone pours champagne at the very top? It overflows and slowly begins to fill all the others. Friends, that's the image of what Paul is saying here, that for us that walk through pain and affliction in this life, we receive comfort from God, and then we are overflowing with that comfort. That those around us then are filled with that exact same comfort. That is what God is doing here, filling us with comfort so that then we may be comforters to others. And Paul is saying that I know that you will share in our sufferings, but I know that you will also share in the comfort. So it's important here to highlight what Paul isn't saying. Paul doesn't say, hey, I know that you're going to share in our suffering and you're going to share in our deliverance. 
I'm confident that God will remove you from this difficult circumstance. That, this is what Paul says. Instead, Paul says that, yes, you will share in our sufferings, but you will also share in comfort. The promise is not deliverance, it's comfort. Whenever we see that, that God is raising up for us and working something within us in those moments, even in moments where we don't understand what he's doing, that he is working and comforting us so that we then can be comforters to others, that then reframes our thinking. As we walk through affliction, no longer asking the question, God, what are you doing to me and how can I get out of it? It changes then to ask the question, God, what are you doing in me and how are you going to use it? God, what are you doing within me, and how are you going to use it? God's greatest ministers were often prepared through suffering. You think back throughout the Bible, and who are your favorite characters? They're probably not the ones where everything just went nice and easy for them. They were the ones that went through tremendous pain, but God was there in the midst of it. And friends, it's no different in our lives today that the ones that God is using, both within his church and around the world, are those that are walking through difficulty, but God is there comforting them and walking alongside them. Goodness, even in our own lives, it's in those moments that we're the closest to him. All right, think back in your life and think of the moments that you've been the closest to God. And I can just about guarantee I would put a lot of money on the fact that it's probably not in long stretches where everything was just going great in times of ease or comfort. But as you think back and you think of the moments where you're the closest to the heart of God, for me at least and for so many others, it's in those moments we're going through affliction, either great pain or we're battling great sin. Because in those moments, we're consistently having to run back to the cross saying, God, I can't do this. And it's in those moments, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that when we realize that, when we realize our weakness, we begin to truly experience the grace and power of God. Not in moments where everything's going great. Charles Hodge, an old theologian, put it this way. He said, a life of ease is commonly stagnant. A life of ease is commonly stagnant. It's those who suffer much and who experience much of the comfort of God who then live much. And friends, it's true for us that whatever affliction you might be in the middle of right now, that you can find comfort that only God can offer and then be prepared to share that comfort with others, with those around you. So I can't help but preparing this past week, and goodness, I've been thinking about it for a few months now, of stories that have happened even amongst our church where I've seen this text come to life and seen legs put on it. As a, a few months ago, there was a couple in our church that lost their child and, uh, through miscarriage. The child was born into the arms of Jesus. And I watched not only uh, people in leadership here or people in their small group, I saw this church come out of the woodwork to come around and love and comfort them. And the story that I began to hear was moms and dads who were coming and saying, we've been there too. We've experienced this as well. This is what God has done for us. Let us come now and just cry with you. And I watched that, and I sat down in their living room with them, and I heard them say, Caleb, we've been overwhelmed at how people have responded, and now we feel like we need to go and do this to other people. And I wasn't sitting here teaching a Bible study on 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 7, but it was this text come to life. 
It was the church being the church, and it was people ministering to one another. I was honestly stepped back and removed. It was people who were stepping in and weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice and feeling what others are feeling as well. And the comfort that we experienced in our pain and affliction brought and offered that to those who were hurting as well. And friends, I saw that, and I saw this text brought to life. This isn't about professional or varsity Christians that people might sometimes think staff or leadership is. Listen, the church is not a group of a handful of leaders. The church is the people. It is the body. It is the family. And if there's anything that we're here to do, it is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so when I stepped back and saw that, that people were just coming and loving and sending gift cards and bringing meals and just showing up uninvited and giving a hug and then leaving, I just couldn't believe the way in which this came to light. And friends, that's a small example of what it is we're called to do as the church, as a body. And that happens both within this church as we become members of a church, but then also even more locally as we become part of small groups. That's one of the reasons why we have small groups here. So we can have those kind of relationships and so that we can have kind of a front line in our lives of when those situations rise up. Those small groups are there to be able to help form relationships that otherwise are hard to exist on Sunday mornings. Our small groups that kind of function as conduits of comfort so that whenever those situations arise, that first line of defense are the people that we're eating with and homes with and we are there alongside. And so I saw that that's it. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians, that those who experience God's comfort in their affliction then move so that they could comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. Friends, God is preparing us in those moments sometimes, of difficult moments of pain and affliction and trials. He's meeting us in that moment and preparing us to use us, to work through us, to continue his ministry, his comfort, his love, and his grace in ways that otherwise wouldn't. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said that the pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's often through trials that God speaks the loudest. And so God is the God of all comfort. And he comforts us so that we will be prepared to comfort others. So that even what the enemy might mean for evil, God then turns it for our good and for his glory. And it is true that he is truly sovereign over us. But praise God that he is also sympathizing next to us. Let's pray.